friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Today, I want to turn to a wonderful publication called Angelus. I happen to write for Angelus. Angelus is the multimedia news platform of the nation's largest archdiocese, the Archdiocese of LA. You know, that's a really interesting archdiocese. It's uh, not only the largest, it's also extremely diverse. The mass in Los Angeles is told in many different languages. We're going to get more details about that later. And the head of the archdiocese is Archbishop Gomez, who also happens to be the president of the United States Council of Bishops. Anyway, just a really interesting place, Los Angeles, with a really great publication called Angelus. It has a component online, but it also produces a magazine that is really wonderful and has really amazing writers that write for it, not because I'm one of them, because I'm not one of the amazing writers. For instance, Bishop Barron, also Scott Hahn uh, are two of the writers. Another one is Mike Aquilina, who is going to be talking to us today at the top of the show. He's a fabulous writer and a great Catholic author, and he's written recently something that really uh, caught my attention in Angelus. Uh, which actually comes to your mailbox if you subscribe, which is a wonderful thing these days. I love to actually feel the print in my hands, feel the weight of the paper. We spend so much time online. Uh, me, for instance, my day job is radiology, so I spend so much of my day sitting in front of the computer looking at black and white images. And then um, to you know, when I'm waiting to sign reports and things, I will turn to my other screen and I'll, I'll check the news. And it seems to me sometimes that my day is being absorbed by the computer and then when I want to read something interesting maybe I'm reading on my Kindle or on my phone um, I'm reading something digital even if it's a great book just the fact that it's always on a screen is 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 tiring right I don't know and it makes me feel that that we're living in this uh, pretend world all the time so anyway Angelus if you get a subscription will actually come into your mailbox and you can pick it up and hold it in your hands and leaf through the pages and it's such a novel feeling these days I don't even know anyone who gets newspapers anymore. That's how far along we've come in this digital revolution. Well, I'm sure we'll be sorry for it later in many ways, even though it's brought us a lot of wonderful things. For instance, one thing I love about digital reading is that there are so many things available online that you could never get your hands on if you wanted an actual print copy. A lot of books that are no longer being published, haven't been published in a long time, and now you can actually, you, you can access them. And of course, it's only on a screen, but at least you get to read the author's words that maybe you could never afford to buy an old edition you know, of, a, of, a, of an interesting work that is not that interesting to so many people. Anyway, I'm both criticizing and lauding uh, the digital revolution, uh, but it still is really nice when you open your mailbox and you see a magazine that you can pick up and you can look through and it's full of wonderful things, including yours truly, because I do write for Angelus and and I love to write for Angelus because it's, uh, it's, it's a religious magazine and it allows me to, to put front and center in ways that I, I don't do when I'm writing politically, when I'm writing political things or even, you know, even on the same topic for uh, publications that are mainstream and that are secular, you, you know, you can't really express all the things that are in your heart because so much of what people of faith feel about everything that they do so it is informed by our understanding of God and our and of ourselves as sons and daughters of God it's wonderful to be able to express in Angelus all those different those different uh, lights of the, of our understanding and and not leave anything out and 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 really not leave the most important thing out which is the way we really fundamentally understand the world 
We will be talking with editor-in-chief of Angelos, Pablo K., later on in the hour about lots of important issues. What's it, well, first of all, what it's like to run a magazine like Angelus and, and to work with so many distinguished contributors, but also about things that are going on with online media, the way the pandemic has impacted it. Before that, I'm very happy to have Mike Aquilina with us. He is a great Catholic author and a frequent writer at Angelus. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me, Gracie. Oh, you know, I feel very proud to share um, a publication like Angelus with people like you, who are such wonderful writers and, and other great uh, uh, writers at Angelus. Later on in the show, we're going to have Pablo K on, because I want oh. he's the editor of Angelus, as you well know, because I really, I wanted him to tell our listeners more about such a wonderful publication, which I'm sure you're very happy to work for. Oh, I sure am. And it's great to share the pages with you. <laughs> you know, Mike, the, uh, I read everything religiously that comes out of um, Angelus. And I, I read a piece from you last week. It was, it was absolutely fabulous. And I hope that all our listeners uh, will, will take the time and, and I'll tell them at the end how to, how to find it. But it was about the, the way that abortion has always been at the first and foremost, um, always from the beginning, from day one for, for Christianity, something to be rejected completely. And I'll just quote, I'll quote from your piece to get us started. Abortion was, in fact, the first social injustice confronted by Christians. That's absolutely true. And, uh, and Christians were the first to confront the world about, about this injustice, about the, about the injustice that's inherent in abortion. Um, uh, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, the uh, Persians, the Phoenicians, the Romans, the Greeks, everybody was okay with abortion. Everybody was okay with infanticide. The one exception was the Jews, who based their judgments on the law of God and natural law. And they did argue against abortion. But they kept to themselves. They kept within their their war, their quarantine, uh, their uh, their their preserve. You know, they were a people uh, enclosed upon themselves. So they they were not so much a confrontation to those outside their tribe. Once Christianity brings the law of Israel's God to the outside world, it really is a confrontation. And this was one of the stark, startling just astonishing differences between Christians and the rest of the world. And it's probably one of those, those, those issues that exacerbated uh, persecutions. One of the things you say right, right at the front of your piece, uh, and this was news to me, and I'm so glad I read this, and that now I can understand it. Most people believe, and I, and I think I probably did too, that uh, abortion is not mentioned in the New Testament as something to be avoided. I mean, of course, do not kill, but abortion specifically. So explain to our listeners how abortion makes it into the New Testament and how we may not have noticed, even though we've read it several times and hear it all the time. Well, there are several uh, instances of moral inventories, lists in the, in the New Testament. We find them in St. Paul. We find them in the book of Revelation, and they'll often list off immoral acts, uh, often sexual acts uh, that, that were condemned by the Christians. And, uh, and, and you'll, 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 you'll find these, as I said, in St. Paul and in the book of Revelation. And in four of these lists, we find, in addition to all the sexual activity you might expect, we find this word that's surprising to modern, modern uh, readers. It's pharmakeia. In, in Greek, pharmakeia. So it suggests pharmacy, right? Mm -hmm. Pharmaceuticals. And, and, uh, and it, it's often translated as potions. Sometimes it's translated as sorcery or witchcraft. Well, you went to sorcerers to get your potions in those days, and those were the closest things you could find to pharmaceuticals. Um, and, and often what people w went to these sorcerers for were abortifacient drugs, uh, you know, they, that work the way the morning-after pill works today, or even the, the common birth control pill works today. It can be abortifacient. So, um, so people would go for these drugs, and the drugs were very effective. If you look at any of the standard histories of abortion, you'll find you know which drugs were used uh, commonly in those days, and 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 how um, how popular they were. Really, the the one that I usually refer to is Eve's herbs, um, which.
which is a history of contraception and abortion in the West by John M. Riddle. It came out from Harvard University Press. It's a pro-choice book. It's a pro-abortion book. It, it argues for legal abortion, and it says in those years, uh, abortion was very common, um, especially by these pharmaceutical methods, but also by surgical methods. And, and that, of course, is abundantly evident. I quoted some of the accounts the, and the instructional literature um, for abortion in those years as well. When, I'm, when I was reading your piece, I was shocked by the account, for instance, that you refer to. You, you, account, you refer to an account by Tertullian mm-hmm. where he actually describes the, the procedure of abortion exactly in the same way that it's practiced today. And, and I know from being a, a physician, I've never performed an abortion, thank God. But it describes uh, opening the neck of the uterus, inserting an instrument and pulling out pieces of the fetus. And I'm the first first time li- I'm reading that, I'm thinking, wow, this is a tremendously painful procedure for the mother. The, all yeah. these interventions, the mother must have been howling in pain. Um, yeah. But it's it's absolutely the same procedure that's practiced today. That in fact, you know, where there's a there's a Supreme Court case coming up in October that that is uh, directly challenging the fact that these things are done on 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 human beings that can feel pain. Yes, and and it's it's not as if um, this is a, a new idea that's new to the world and the church is coming out of the blue from its benighted past. No, we have been facing this since day one. We have been facing it uh, since before then, actually. And the church has consistently uh, condemned condemned abortion in um, in in all of its forms. So so you find that that in those 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 books by Tertullian, he is quoting from the manuals of, of, uh, of how to perform an abortion that were common in his days. He knew the medical literature, and he was, he was just putting it out there. He said that there was an instrument they called the baby killer. They knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that is, that's the instrument that they used to finish the baby off. They knew what they were doing, and they called it by its name. Um, so, um, so this is not something new, and it's not that the circumstances are any different today. The church was vehement in its condemnation of abortion in the first century uh, and consistent in that. So we find it in so much of the documentary record from that time. It's not as if Tertullian is one voice out there, a lone voice speaking. No, we find it in many of the documents from the first century, the second century, the third century, and then an explosion in the fourth century. So basically Christianity alighted upon this world and said to an unsuspecting world, no, just because your children are annoying to you or they have conceived in ways that that were wrong no you cannot dispose of them and this was this was a complete shock right to the rest of the world yes and it wasn't the only thing uh, that was scandalous to the world many things that the Christians taught were scandals the Christians uh, taught for example that it was morally wrong to beat a slave or rape a slave now these were things that that the Roman world took took for granted. Of course you can beat your slave. Of course you can rape your slave. You can do whatever you want with a slave because slaves have no rights. Christians would not stand for that. Christians were the first on earth to propose ideas like universal human rights, universal human dignity, um, the, the equality of the sexes. All of these things originate with Christianity. And, uh, and, and uh, these are the foundations of what we today consider Western civilization. Another one of those planks in the foundation was the opposition to abortion, which the Christians saw as another social injustice. Mm-hmm. Once you start taking out planks, all the others start falling in. So, uh, you know, to say that, I want to keep all of those others, but I want to get rid of this one that opposes abortion. Well, that's not going to work, because it's the same principle um, that drives us to oppose slavery, to oppose inequality, that also drives us to oppose abortion. And Christians were presenting these new concepts, uh, of course, based on the on the foundational idea of, of our faith that each of us is created in God's image, that we are willed into being by a, by our Creator in a personal way, in a specific mm-hmm. way. That's not we're not interchangeable units, or there is not a single human being that that wasn't well planned by God. <laughs> um, yeah. And and the, so Christianity was presenting this. And, and it must have been a horrible scandal to a culture that not only performed abortion as a matter of course and accepted abortion, but also practiced infanticide at, at, at tremendous rates. Yes, yes. These, these were very common at that time. So, the, the, you know, the Christians do show up and they have these these uh, these 
ideas that seem strange at the time. But, you know, now we're 2,000 years later, and we're living in a civilization that was largely formed by Christianity. What we find is that there are people within our civilization who want to undo what, what, um, what, uh, what, what Christianity has done, especially in these areas. Uh, Dr. Riddle, who wrote this book uh, that's a history of, of abortion, refers to the Christian period, these 2,000 years, as a break in the chain of knowledge, a break in the chain mm. of knowledge. So different is, is Christianity from everything that had gone before, and so different is Christianity from everything that's emerging right now in these, um, in these movements that support abortion. So he's, um, he's looking at that, and he's seeing Christianity as the break in the chain. Well, no, Christianity was the salvation from what had gone before, and I fear the world that we're entering uh, when we no longer believe in universal human dignity, universal human rights, the right to, to life. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we are discussing the Church's Original Social Issue, a great article by Mike Aquilina, with Mike Aquilina, that he wrote recently in Angeles News. So, um, in this book about abortion, the history of abortion, the Christian period of the last 2,000 years is referred to as a kind of obscurantism, correct? Like a time of darkness, uh, mm-hmm. when light had gone before, and now maybe we're finally emerging out of the darkness of the time when when children were children in the womb were were given value and worth. Yes, yes. Um, if you want kind of the opposite view of it, I recommend another book, which is which is Abortion in the Early Church uh, by by Michael Gorman, and that really does look at this period and and what it actually produced. Because what did it produce? It produced a demographic winter. The Roman emperors from Caesar Augustus onward tried desperately to to get people to marry, to get people to have children, and they could not succeed in doing this. They tried to legislate fertility. They tried to tax people for not having children or for having too few children. They, they tried everything they could to incentivize childbirth, and they could not make it go forward. I, it, it's like it never occurred to them that there was a problem with the way they were approaching human reproduction, you know, uh, uh, sexual life, you know, and the happiness of the family. What happens is that Christians come onto the scene and they appear to be revolutionary. They have these families. They have happy families. They have large families. They're not afraid of reproduction. They are reproducing at an alarming rate. And they're illegal in the empire. As a matter of fact, it's a, it's a capital crime to practice Christianity. And yet they're growing so rapidly that it's alarming the authorities. Well, by uh, the end of the second century, the Roman emperors begin to realize that uh, that, that, that all of their efforts at promoting uh, fertility for economic reasons are just failing. They can't legislate happiness in a family. They can't legislate uh, 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 fecundity. They, they just can't make it happen. Um, so, so, um, so they try something pretty bold. They start to imitate Christian morality. And for the first time in history, you find anti-abortion laws begin, uh, beginning to appear on the books uh, in the Roman Empire, anyway, uh, they, uh, there, there are laws against abortion, you know, disincentivizing it, penalizing it, and, uh, and they're trying to, to, uh, to imitate Christians in this way. Well, it didn't work <laughs> because there was no there was no cultural framework for it. There was no philosophical framework. People didn't take it seriously, and the law wasn't enforced, so it didn't go forward that way. But Christians, the Christian Church, did go forward and did develop and, uh, and, and did establish itself as the dominant force replacing the Roman Empire in that time. It wasn't just because of fertility. It's because we, we, we showed a better way. But fertility played no small part in it. Let me quote from your article. The Christian principles that protected the unborn would eventually lead to other notions of univer- like universal human dignity, human equality, human rights, and women and children's rights. I thought that this was um, maybe the the sentence of your piece because I feel very strongly, and I think that uh, most people who are paying attention can see that in a in a culture that doesn't value the unborn, that culture is unable to value any kind of class of person. When you when you say these this class of people is not protected, this class of people can be discarded, then really you're erasing rights for every class of people. You're absolutely right. You know that's um. 
earlier in the show, uh, you quoted that great line from Genesis, you know, that we're created in the image and likeness of God. Now, that's, um, that's the foundation of, of all of our polity. That's the, uh, the, the foundation of all of our medical ethics. That's, that's, that's what we believe about, about everything in our social interactions, that all of the people we come in contact with are radically equal to us, mm-hmm. you know, that we're all equal before God. We're made in his image and likeness. And that changes everything. Now, everybody likes the result of that. Everybody likes having rights and dignity. Everybody likes those things, right? But they also want to be able to, to do, what, do as they wish with other people, mm-hmm. right? So they, they introduce a sliding scale of personhood. The problem is that it doesn't work. You can't have a, a sliding scale of personhood so that prisoners, for example, are less worthy of dignity than people on the outside, right? Mm-hmm. Because then what we find is that prisoners are abused. Prisoners are treated very badly. They're given a bad life, and, um, and they're not treated uh, as, as someone who bears the image and likeness of God. Well, it's the same thing with the unborn. You know, uh, uh, you know we, we dehumanize them. We, we introduce this sliding scale of personhood so that they are off the scale. They're off the charts. They no longer have human dignity. I really think that that undermines the whole project of human dignity and human rights. That I think that if you begin to argue that the unborn child, especially a child in the last trimester, and that's legal all through these United States, you know, a child in the last trimester can just be killed at the will of, of, um, of a parent or, or, uh, or a guardian. Well, that's, that's a terrible thing. Um, and uh, and, and I, I don't see how we can go from there to argue uh, and still be able to argue for the dignity of prisoners, to be able to argue for the dignity of people on death row, for example, because, uh, because these things don't hold up. In the case of a child, we're talking about someone who possesses full human dignity. Mike, what, what I find so important about your piece, uh, besides all the truths in it, is that there's, there's something that I encounter all the time in, in conversations um, with people of all ages, not even young people, but people of all ages, is a lack of historical understanding of, of the, the place of Christianity in, in, in world history. And so they, they think about things like abortion, that we are confronting new challenges of ideology, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe challenges related to advances in science or advances as though, as though human beings have progressed to a certain point where now we can, we can do away with, with restrictive ideologies like respect for the unborn. But in fact, we're, it's always the same, the same uh, dry, the, the same ideals of Christianity confronting the same old ugliness of paganism. It's like we're having the same conversation all the time, but people now think it's a brand new conversation with new parameters. Yes, you know, all 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 society uh, is based on religion. All culture is based on cult, and it makes a difference which cult, which religion you you base it on. Okay, uh, the Buddhist religion produces a fundamentally different kind of culture mm-hmm. from from the, from our Western culture. Same thing with Hinduism. It's the same thing with with Islam. Uh, a different cult will produce a different culture. I happen to like the culture that has been produced by by. Christianity and Judaism. I think it's produced um, a, a, a culture of liberal tolerance, uh, a culture of, um, of human rights that's unprecedented in the world. Um, uh, I, I like these things that we've gained as a result of the, of the Christian revolution. It was, it was Jewish in, in origin, but it went out to the world through Christianity. I love what it's produced. I think we have to look at the cultures that are on offer and say to ourselves, which one do we want to live in? And if the culture we're living in is becoming something other than it's been before, we have to ask, what are we becoming? How are we going to treat people in the future of this culture as it's developing? Mike, our listeners know, if they've been listening, I haven't adopted, my husband and I haven't adopted a child from China. And when I, 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 I compare our cultures, well, that's a radically unchristian culture in, in general, well, although there's many Christians and Catholics in China. And when I went to China to adopt her, first of all, she was a child who was abandoned at birth on the street due to a culture that worships um, the state instead of mm-hmm. God and due to a one-child policy, which is brutal and, and, and 
uh, forces abortion on women of, of big babies and makes women hide to have their children. I mean, terrible things all around this lack of idea of the dignity of life. And when mm-hmm. I was in China and I would carry my little girl around and uh, at the market or just out for a walk, people would walk up to me, Chinese people walk up to me and they would point at me holding my baby and they would say, Christian. Because they were able to, they in China were able to draw that line between Christianity and adoption, a Christianity and the dignity of life, Christianity and caring for a child that an entire country doesn't care for. And hospitality, you know, this welcoming idea that created Western institutions like the hospital. Mm -hmm. The hospital was based on the welcoming of people nobody else had wanted, sick people, Mm -hmm. diseased people, contagious people. We created the first hospitals that took everybody in, that had monks and nuns caring for people um, to to the moment of their death or until the moment they they, died. they, they got well. Um, w- they were willing to do this. As a matter of fact, I live in Pittsburgh. Uh, many times in the early history of my city, uh, the, uh, the town fathers tried to start a hospital. And you know what? The enterprise always fell apart at the first epidemic. When there was an epidemic, everything closed up because nobody wanted to treat patients with cholera, with mm-hmm. smallpox. Of course. Because they knew that it would be a death sentence for themselves and for their families. They didn't want to go home with the disease. So who were the first to establish a hospital in my city? Well, it was the Sisters of Mercy, because they were willing to keep the hospital open through an epidemic, through a cholera epidemic, and, uh, and they did, and, uh, and, and some of them died in the process, but they showed that they were willing to do it. And that was the first hospital in the city of Pittsburgh. I suspect that many cities in the United States have similar stories behind their first hospitals. Well, that's, you know, these are such wonderful connections that are, they seem so obvious to me and you, Mike. I, I hope that our listeners are making those connections, too, and, and are able to express them to the people around them. That The connection between cult and culture, the connection between respecting the life of the unborn and respecting all the other rights that come with being a daughter and son of God. So thank you so much for joining us today, Mike. I'm sorry we're out of time. It it was really pleasant to have you, and I hope that you join us again. And I hope that our listeners will go to Angelus News uh, online and look up your beautiful piece. Um, Give us the title again, Mike. Uh, The title in the printed piece was called An Ancient Social Injustice. It might be called something different online, but if you if you search on abortion and, and my name, Mike Aquilina, you'll see it there. Well, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having me. to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. And next up, we have Pablo Kay. He is the editor-in-chief of Angeles News, a wonderful publication. Um, their magazine that you can get actually in paper in your mailbox is called Always Forward. I'm very happy to be a contributing writer for that publication. And also, I turn to it online for all the latest in Catholic news. It's uh, really a wonderful site. So welcome to the show, Pablo. Hi, Gracie. Thank you for having me on. No, I'm really happy that you're here with us. I wanted all our listeners to to learn about Angelus. I'm sure many of them receive it or use it to get uh, the latest Catholic news online. But it's such a wonderful publication, and you, all of you are doing such a fabulous job that I wanted to highlight you. Well, we're both a, a little bit biased, right? Yes. I'm the editor, and you're a... <laughs> You're a columnist for us, so. Okay, but I get a lot of wonderful feedback all the time about Angelus. In fact, somebody today, we were having a conference call uh, um, amongst people who are very plugged into the Catholic media world, and several people piped up and said, well, Angelus is fabulous. Well, that's good to hear, because I, as the editor, you know, you tend to get the uh, more of the angry letters or, or the complaints, which are, are natural and, and part of the job, but that's always good to hear. <laughs> well, don't get me started started on medicine you know we doctors never hear anything good it's only complaints (laughs) no one calls to say you did a great job on that radiology reading (laughs) that's right let's start from scratch because a lot of people 
maybe don't know some really amazing things about the publication and where it comes from. So first of all, it is the organ of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, correct? Right. We are the biweekly news magazine of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And, and we're also kind of a, a multi-platform, if you will, multi-platform uh, news service, which, which means that in addition to the magazine, we have a, a website that's updated throughout the day, every day, with our original content, as well as news from some of the most trusted Catholic uh, news sources out there. Then we also have a, a daily newsletter, Always Forward, which is totally free. You can sign up at our at our website, angelusnews.com. Um, and that gives every morning or early afternoon, if you're on the East Coast, kind of the, the, the Catholic news that you need to know for the day and so we we use content from our from our angelusnews.com website but also kind of give a roundup of some of the important uh, reporting and content that's kind of floating around that day from even from secular news sources we are based in los angeles so so some of there there is a, a certain a local element to some of the the news we gather but certainly not all and even you know noise forward we try to include basically what people are talking about so even if there's a there's a new york times thing piece on uh, uh, the morality of vaccines. We try to give as, as broad a scope as possible. The, the goal is to inform our readers, and we know that that just can't com come from one news source, right? So with Always Forward, we try to give as a broad and informed view as possible for people to uh, to kind of have their, their news diet satisfied every day. I, I feel um, that being out of LA, you have a special cosmopolitan or very inclusive view of, of what's happening in the world because Los Angeles is such a diverse place and the Archdiocese of LA has all the work that they do is done on so many different cultural levels. Is that true? It is. And before anything, Los Angeles is the biggest diocese in the United States. I think it's the fifth or sixth biggest in the world. And we're in the media capital of the country, arguably the world, and I guess in some respects. So I think my boss, Archbishop Jose Gomez, is conscious of that, and that's why he's committed to making sure that the, the news operation of his diocese it kind of reflects that and, and takes up that responsibility. Yeah, because it is a, a grave responsibility to, to, to reflect the world back at people in a way that culturally is accessible to them, I think. Right. We also have to realize, I mean, being a, a millennial <laughs> myself still, but I think everyone has to realize, right, every generation, that the world that we live in today, that Catholics are living in today, is very different from, from what it was even 10, 20, but especially 50, 60 years ago. I mean, to be a Catholic in today's world, I hate to sound dramatic, but you have to fight. I mean, mm -hmm. you really have to. And to fight, you have to be armed, right? And I think one of the the most important weapon, if you will, is, is the gift of faith that baptism gives us, right? But uh, behind that, I think uh, what's really important is, is to be informed, be informed about what's going on in the world, and then also what the church's response is in front of, in response to what's going on in the world. So, for example, I think um, with something like, I hate to, to go to maybe the, the low-hanging fruit here, but something like, a, like gender ideology, right? The transgenderism, the LGBT movement. There's so many, on one hand, there's this immense pressure and, if you will, confusion in today's secular world about this topic. A Catholic, a, a good, a well-intentioned Catholic can look around and say, well, Jesus said, love everyone, love your enemies, love love your, your neighbor, your brother and sister. And so, well, this word love is means let's, uh, why not accept anyone and anything, right? Mm-hmm. What does it take if if people aren't being formed well, either in their parishes or in their families, or to, to know what the, what the Catholic Church teaches, the richness of, of Catholic teaching on sexuality, on the family, on uh, on our own human anthropology, who we are, where do we come from, what is the meaning even of our, our bodies? You know, what, what it, it may seem like a like a, a an out there example, right? But this is a, a concrete kind of reality that all of us are dealing with, right? Um, it, through the media, even in our own families, you know, you, one of your children comes home one day and and tells you that they're going through this or they're not sure about that. So if we as Catholics aren't equipped, we're not informed not only about what's going on in the world and what's going on in the church, but how the church guides us to respond to, to these kind of phenomena that are happening in the year 2021. 
then I think we're in trouble, right? So Angelus, uh, and I think we're not the only ones that do it, but I, I would hope that we're the ones who do it best. Part of, I think, being a, a Christian is, of, uh, I hate to be blunt here, but we, we can't be stupid, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we need to we need to be we need to have our eyes open to what's going on, and we also need to see wh- where the church, uh, where where ordinary Catholics like you and me are stepping up and 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 doing good things and bringing people to the church, bringing people to Jesus Christ, which is in the end is to bring people to happiness. You mentioned the name of the newsletter is Always Forward. What a great motto! It comes from San Junipero Serra, if I'm not mistaken, Pablo. Um, that was his motto, and it does indicate in this context that we're talking talking about a willingness to meet the world where the world is and then push forward like not to be in an attitude of defensiveness or let's hide in our bubbles and not be exposed to the things that we find hard to understand or that we feel that we're not equipped to handle exactly so the interesting thing about St. Junipero Serra as, as many of your listeners I'm sure know is that he was kind of the apostle of, of California right he was mm-hmm. a, a Franciscan missionary from Spain he really laid some of the first seeds of the faith there in California Angelus before in 2016, what is now Angelus was the tidings. It was a, a weekly newspaper published by the Archdiocese. And in 2016, my predecessor, together with Archbishop Gomez, um, they made the, the decision to transition to a new format, a weekly magazine, and a new name, Angelus. The first edition was July 1st, 2016, the feast day of St. Junipero Serra. And it was great. the first, and it was the first, uh, so to speak, feast day of San Junipero Serra, because as you can remember, Pope Francis the year before in 2015 in September had canonized St. Junipero during his visit to Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. So there was kind of, there's kind of this whole Junipero Serra theme there, of course. And just like you say, it, I think it's exactly that. It's it's this theme of, of looking forward, of, of going forward. I mean, if you look at the life of this saint, um, nothing could stop him. And he had his weaknesses. I'm sure he had his sins, like you and me. But the guy put up with such an immense amount of spiritual suffering, physical suffering. I mean, his feet, illnesses, everything. And his his thing was always forward. I, I was just at a funeral this morning, and so it makes me think, well, the only way is forward if, if you and I want to get to heaven. So <laughs> so I kind of have that in my head today. Forgive me. No, no, it's a wonderful way to think about life, right? We, we push forward. We know what our eventual goal is, where we want to reach. We want to bring as many people as we can with us, starting with our families. And how wonderful to have someone like, like San Junipero very much at the center of the, of the idea of Angela's News. If you're just joining us, I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christine. And we're talking with a dear friend and colleague, Pablo K. He's the editor-in-chief of Angeles News. You know, San Junipero, of course, is a person, sort of a lightning rod for people who uh, don't understand him very well, don't understand the history of California. In my opinion, I think it's a lack of understanding of the very beautiful, complicated history of, of California and how intertwined it is with the history of the church and people like San Junipero, those missionaries. You know, sometimes we feel now in, mod- in our modern day, we feel confronted by the culture and changes that have happened and the way it's so hard to understand and the way human anthropologies, our understanding is meant to shift constantly. Every day we, see, we we are confronted by new ideas that don't make any sense. I do think about someone like San Junipero who, who confronted an alien culture, something that alien in the sense that he, it was alien to him. He had to learn to understand it and then he was able to evangelize it. We're not really in a different position from people like the missionaries. Right. And St. Junipero, more than anything, at, at the end of the day, what he brought to California was news, right? He brought a good Oh, that's uh, a great, news. yeah, wonderful way to think about it. I think there's a, a, a church father, someone who says that, you know, Christianity, um, it's not a philosophy. Um, and in a sense, it's not a religion, right? A religion, every every culture has some form of religion. So, you know, you do a sacrifice, you ask God for something, and you, you do this, and you expect something back. But more than anything, Christianity is a good news. And now we, we see that the good news that he brought led to something, right? It, it bore fruit. So, of course, in a sense, it's much more difficult today because we have so much news. We're bombarded with all kinds of messages, Catholic or not, right? We're, we live in this world. And just like you said, the, the point isn't to, to withdraw into our safe space, to be sheltered, to only um, listen to one news channel or, or read one newspaper. We're called to be out there and, and be a, some, a sign of contradiction, right? Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, 
what's the news that we bring? I have no pretensions as, a, as the editor of a magazine. Um, I don't expect that Angelos is going to convert anybody or, or even change anyone's life necessarily. But uh, I think the one of the worst things we could do, is, especially in the media, is, is have this kind of savior complex. But we can certainly help. And if we're, we're shedding light on the things that matter... That I think we're already uh, we're already doing a big help to the church and to the world. Well, I think you underestimate the power of Angelus Pablo. There are so many opportunities. Every time we interact with someone on print, in the news, and every time that we have an effect on someone just by the fact that they're they're imbibing information or imbibing a concept, there is tremendous opportunities for spiritual growth, and we don't ever see that. There's very few times that we can turn around and put our finger on something and say, "Oh, I had this amazing impact on this person's life." No, for sure it is. <laughs> In my editor's chair, what I see is, I think more and more with our cell phone, with our with our AirPods and whatever, it's it's really hard to get people to stop and read. So obviously, that's why we that's why we we're so we put so much effort into having an online presence, also on, on social media and our newsletter, and really to try to get people to stop. There's some interesting and, and some good things to, to read and hear. You have really good contributors. You want to tell us about some of them? You can skip me. Don't worry about me. <laughs> uh, sure, we have Catherine Jean Lopez, who I'm sure many of your uh, your readers know or your listeners know well. Sure. Uh, she's a she doesn't need any introduction or, or anything really one of the most important voices in the in the church in the country today then there's mike aquilina who uh is probably the smartest person i've ever met well really, he's sharing uh, he's sharing this radio hour with you pablo because i interviewed him a little while ago and he he was amazing <laughs> so well, our listeners just heard of just heard him yeah then don't tell him i said that okay but um uh, as you just heard it i think he he speaks for himself right mm. the important thing is we have to make sure that we as Catholics don't stop thinking, right? It's easy to stop thinking in today's world. You can just hook yourself up to Netflix for hours or, or to your Spotify or to your, you know. And so I think we, we Catholics need to be thinking and, and even debating. And uh, so Angelus tries to provide a space for that. You did an, an interview of Bishop Barron recently that I really liked. Yeah, well, you know, Bishop Barron, I suspect that Pope Francis, uh, when he named him a bishop, sent him to L.A., knowing the savvy and the gifts he has and so sent him to the media capital of la and he's, he's just a huge blessing even though he he he's very busy as a bishop and then he also was involved with word on fire i saw that that bishop Barron was starting to get some attention over some comments he had he had made on on wokeism i sent him a note and and i said hey bishop i have a few i think we could uh, develop this conversation a bit more and again the thing was to to get his thoughts kind of out there and crystal on on exactly what we're dealing what we're seeing with the kind of woke movement which I would add and I didn't say this in the interview but I think that the definition of woke has changed a lot the last eight years or so which is when I kind of first remember hearing it on the radio and songs you know woke for me was was just you know kind of be in the know keep your eyes open you know kind of know what's going on but now i think it's transformed into this this whole ideology right which is what bishop Barron was was trying to get at so i i think that interview was fascinating because it does leave some room for debate in terms of uh what exactly this movement means and what the the catholic response is and i even asked him uh, i named a few saints i think like dorothy day or archbishop romero you know wouldn't they be in their own right in their own time because considered kind of woke and he answered in the in the negative <laughs> it was great that you were you were able to elicit that and put that down on paper because you could i felt that it was a way of understanding it as a catholic which gave me more strength to resist because um you know there's always this feeling that well maybe things have changed or maybe right. or as you said in the beginning when we started talking maybe my response ought to be acceptance because love in many ways implies acceptance of the other and but in, in that interview i was able to understand how some of this woke ideology goes against real love, the real love of charity that God um, is teaching us through his church. And, and Bishop Biram gave that that interview in the context a book that his his publishing apostolate Word on Fire just published, which is kind of like a compendium, a collection of different writings from the saints and some of the popes throughout the years on social justice issues, right? And so, if there's anyone who would kind of understand how the church 
would respond to this new reality, I think it would be the guy who put that book together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so that was that was nice. Well, thank you, Pablo. It was a delight having you on. Thank you so much, Gracie, as always. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry. It's a privilege for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when we will see a dramatic turnaround from what we considered a week ago. In last Sunday's Gospel, Jesus called Simon Peter the rock on which he would build his church and promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. This Sunday, Jesus calls Peter Satan and tells him essentially that the gates of hell are prevailing against him. Why does this happen? Because Peter was rejecting Jesus' prophetic words that Jesus would suffer, be killed, and be raised. Peter shouted, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. We might think that this was just the concern of a friend trying to prevent Jesus from suffering harm. But Jesus, the divine Lord, saw something much deeper. The reason why he called Peter Satan was because Peter at that moment was, without realizing it, playing the part of Satan the tempter, effectively trying to steer Jesus away from doing the Father's will. The reason why Jesus said, get behind me, is because Peter was trying to lead Jesus rather than follow him. And no creature can ever do that to the Creator. No disciple can ever do that to the Master. Jesus very directly summed up what was the cause of Peter's fall. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. As challenging as that was, Jesus then upped the ante. It was tough enough to accept the way God thinks when that meant that Christ, the Son of living God, as Peter confessed him last week, was going to undergo great suffering and be crucified. But Jesus said that if we wanted to be his disciples, we would need to undergo the same. That is God's standard for us too. If anyone wishes to be my disciple, Jesus tells us at the end of this Sunday's Gospel, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Each of us is, is and wants to be ever better, a follower of Jesus. We want our friends and family members to be disciples of Jesus. We cannot be Jesus' disciples unless we do what Jesus, our teacher, indicates. Denying ourselves rather than affirming ourselves. Picking up our cross daily and following Jesus rather than doing our own thing. To be Jesus' disciple means thinking as Jesus thinks, willing as he wills, choosing as he chooses, serving as he serves, and loving as he loves. That's the high and heroic challenge Jesus puts before us to be his disciples. 2,000 years after Jesus' crucifixion, we're nowhere near as shocked as Peter was when Jesus gave the first of three prophecies of what would happen to him on Good Friday, because we know that it turns out dramatically well on the third day. But most of us are still shocked when Jesus says that in order to be his disciple, we must deny ourselves die to ourselves through the cross and follow him along the path of death in order to live. And we're even more shocked when Jesus asks those we care about to follow him along that path of suffering. We're still tempted to say, God forbid, Lord, that any such thing as pain and suffering of the cross happen to me or my loved ones. Because we struggle to think as God thinks, we're tempted to water down what Jesus said are preconditions to being his follower. We think all Jesus is asking us to do is offer up daily contradictions and hardships. But Jesus' first listeners would never have missed what he was saying when he mentioned that the only way they could follow him is through denying themselves to the extent that they would pick up their cross. It would be as if Jesus said to us today, strap yourself into the electric chair. Because in the ancient world, the cross was used exclusively for the gruesome capital punishment of crucifixion. For Jesus to say that they needed to pick up their cross and follow him meant that they needed to die to themselves on the cross, just like Jesus did on his. As St. Paul, who after his conversion picked up his cross every day and followed the Lord, once wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus wants us to be able to say the same thing. It's only when we've denied ourselves and affirmed God. It's only when we have, in fact, died to ourselves so that Christ may live. It's only when we've lost our life for the sake of Christ and his gospel that we will save our life and be able to follow Christ to the joyful risen existence he suffered and died to make possible for us. This is certainly not man's wisdom, but it is God's wisdom. 
Worldly men and women view the cross exclusively as an evil to be eliminated in the pursuit to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. But a Christian looks at suffering not simply as pain, but as suffering that can redeem us and others. The world looks at the cross as a way of abnegation, of giving up good things, of losing out on good experiences. But a Christian sees it not so much as a path of renunciation and agony, but a way to unleash love, to make us humble, and form us to be good Samaritans when we see others suffering. The way of the cross is fundamentally a yes, not a no. Just as by Christ's stripes we were healed, so by our own stripes, our own crosses, we can make up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings within us for the sake of his body, the church. Jesus, great teacher that he is, sums up the contrast between God's wisdom and man's when he says, For what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? So many in our day strive after money, power, pleasure, and prestige. Jesus is telling us that even if we were able to have all of these in abundance and more, it wouldn't be worth it if in the process we squandered our soul. This is the great Faustian bargain, to use the image of the 19th century German poet Goethe, the quintessential temptation of the devil. Just as Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the desert when he took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So Satan tries to do the same with us. Jesus' response then is what he wants ours to be now. Away with you, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. That's the reason why Jesus called Peter Satan. Because Peter was tempting Jesus to put his physical health and temporal well-being ahead of his soul and eternal well-being, to live for the present rather than forever, just as Satan tried to do to Jesus in the desert. Jesus makes plain that it profits a person nothing to gain the whole world if he forfeits his eternal life in exchange. As we prepare on Monday to celebrate Labor Day, it's important for us to look at work within the plan of redemption. Often our work is arduous. Indeed, it can be a cross, but that cross is meant to be redemptive. God gave the human person before the fall a threefold vocation of work, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, and to have dominion over the fish, the birds, and every living thing. This is part of the goodness of creation. After the fall, however, these three aspects of man's work would all involve some pain. Procreation now would bring with it the pangs of childbirth for the mother. The work of subduing and having dominion would now become toilsome and bring sweat to one's brow. But work not only would remain fundamentally good, but in fact become redemptive. Because through enduring those pangs, toil, and sweat, one would be carrying the cross out of love for those who will benefit from those pangs, toil, and sweat. That's why Jesus is constantly mentioning the human work of shepherds, farmers, doctors, sowers, householders, servants, stewards, merchants, laborers, soldiers, cooks, tax collectors, scholars, harvesters, and fishermen. That's why he himself, for most of his life on earth, shared in the callous-inducing hard work of a tecton, or a builder or construction worker, together with St. Joseph. Jesus entered into the world of human work, not as a cover until his real work would begin, but precisely to redeem noble human work in his process of redeeming the whole person. Jesus was teaching us that one's desk, sewing machine, kitchen, chalkboard, operating room, workbench, or boat is meant to become an altar that sanctifies not only what is given to God in work, but the giver as well. It is there that the vast majority of men and women are called to deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow Jesus, the worker. That's the way we're called to think as God does, rather than human beings. That's the work that will take up a third or more of our adult life and help God to sanctify us. Every time we go to Mass, God strengthens us in our vocation as his cruciform disciples. So we enter into his passion, death, and resurrection. So we receive his body and blood that he offered on the cross for us. We're filled with him so that together with him on the inside, we can deny ourselves of both bad things and some good things, seize our cross each day, grip onto him, and follow him all the way to the Father's eternal right. That is our principal work, expressed in all the work we do for God and others.
This Sunday is an occasion for us to ask him who has chosen us and given us the vocation to follow him, not just in human profession, but in the work of the gospel, to think as God thinks, to put his divine wisdom into practice, and to give our life in shearing in our home, workplace, school, and beyond this path to true life worth sacrificing everything else to obtain. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 